So this is impending judgment and patient endurance. Impending judgment and patient endurance, or good news and bad news. And there's some really bad news that starts this passage, followed by some encouragement. But we start on a very heavy note. And you might recall from earlier in this series on James, in James chapter 1, James gives sort of the thesis statement for the rest of the book. And he makes reference to the fact that we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And the rest of the book is the outworking of that idea, among others. And so we're starting to see the outworking of that now, that we have to be unstained from the world. Last week when Ricardo preached, uh, we saw in chapter 4 how our lusts at war within us are the source of our quarrels and our dissensions. And they they drive us not only to, to battle within ourselves, but also battles outside of us. And then we also saw towards the end of chapter 4 how fleeting we are. And James warns those who presume on the ease of acquiring riches that they should beware that their life could be gone in a moment. And so he says that we shouldn't procrastinate the right thing to do. Well, James continues that thought and shows how serious a thing it is to be driven by lusts, including the lust for wealth gained at the expense of others, and how riches are so uncertain that we shouldn't depend on them. And so James begins with this warning for the rich in the first six verses, followed by an encouragement to those who are watching and patiently suffering in verses 7 through 12. And so to frame the entire passage We could summarize it as follows. Christ's nearness, his imminence, his nearness as judge demands we shun the wicked ways of a perishing world and persevere patiently, peacefully, and joyfully as we await vindication. Christ's nearness as judge demands we shun the ways of a wicked, perishing world and persevere patiently, peaceably, and joyfully as we wait for our vindication. So let's begin by looking at the bad news that's in this passage the warning there's a warning of impending wrath on the impenitent rich impending wrath on the impenitent rich come now you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you so james lays out this charge against the defendants so imagine a court of law this is a lot like the old testament uh, passages where the, the, the prophets function as covenant lawyers, as prosecutors who come to the people who are called by God's name and brings charges against them as defendants, as a prosecutor would bring charges. So the defendants are the rich. We'll talk about who they are. There's four charges that are laid. First, they're hoarding wealth in verse 3. Second, they're withholding wages by fraud in verse 4. Third, they're living in luxury and self-endurance and self-indulgence in verse 5. And fourth, they're murdering and condemning the righteous, verse 6. And then there's judgments. There's a sentencing that happens at the end of this. And there's uh, several consequences that James lays out. First, miseries. He warns them to weep and howl for these miseries in verse 1. Second, there's the corruption of their worldly goods. There's the consumption of that they are to endure by flame. And then there's the imminent slaughter that's waiting for them, that will come when the judge comes for them. So let's start by focusing on who the defendants are. Who are the defendants here? Who are these rich? So there's two attributes here, righteousness and unrighteousness, riches and poverty, wealth and poverty. So imagine quadrants that you would form, right, if you're going to categorize this. There's four types of people. There's, ri- there's righteous, poor, unrighteous, poor, Righteous, rich, and unrighteous, rich. James is not condemning all rich, right? He's condemning the unrighteous rich. 
It's not a sin to be rich. We understand that. James is not a neo-Marxist. In, in the biblical hall of heroes of the faith, there are notorious beggars like Abraham who had a private army that was able to take out ten kings, and Job whose fortune doubled in the end, and Solomon who had bathtubs full of bullion. This is not a zero-sum world where because you have something that automatically means that somebody else doesn't have something. He's not saying that, that just because you're privileged means you're an oppressor. He's not condemning all rich, but he is condemning the rich, a certain type of rich person. The problem isn't wealth. The problem is what you do with it, or rather what wealth does to you. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament economy, there was this understanding that upright living would bring about covenant blessings, right? That they would have a long and prosperous life in the land. And we see that even in our day, living in the new covenant. We still know that if you live wisely in many ways, although not always, things tend to go better, right? If you, if you live within your means, you'll tend to prosper more. Now, we live in a fallen world where that doesn't always happen. But where there's this general principle at play, the Jews at certain times created an immutable law. They saw this immutable law there where they equated possession of wealth and riches with righteousness itself. They saw affluence as evidence of obedience. And that is not the case. And James makes that point emphatically, that, that just because you obey does not mean that physical blessing will follow, follow you. That's, that's heretical. And in fact, even though physical blessings sometimes follow faithfulness to God, the Puritan Cotton Mather once remarked that obedience begets blessing, but the daughter devours the mother. The very blessings that God gives us oftentimes are, are what come back to bite us, right? Riches are blessings that bite back. That's why James said in chapter 1 that the rich should boast in their humiliation, right? Because it's that that brings them into contact with the reality of their own fleetingness. They should, they should boast in their humiliation because that brings them back to reality, but the rich people that James condemns here were blinded to this fact. These are fat cat, power brokering, persecuting, crony capitalists. These are the people that James cited earlier as suing the poor in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. They're suing the poor. They're presuming on the ease of amassing wealth, as we saw at the end of chapter 4. And as a result, they're also procrastinating their good deeds, as we saw at the very end there in verse 17. We should also note that since the particular audience of James is Jews, and we see that at the beginning of the book, it's written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion there, and that language reminds us of the fact that the Jews were dispersed with throughout the Roman world. The audience is Jews, and these people aren't even given a chance to repent. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl. He doesn't say, come, repent. So he's not even giving them the, the chance to repent necessarily. These in particular, are unbelieving Jews outside the church that James is condemning. These are like the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus condemned for using eminent domain to gobble up widows' cottages in Matthew 23, verse 14. They swore by the cash that was sitting in the offering plate instead of the God who filled the whole church building and made it holy in verse 18. Uh, Luke 16:14. Jesus refers to these types of people as lovers of money. This is the class of individuals that he's referring to. They're idolizing wealth. They're presuming upon their riches and their comforts. So those are the rich. Those are the defendants. What are the charges? Again, there's four charges. Hoarding wealth, withholding wages by fraud, living in self-indulgence and luxury, and murdering the righteous. And so the first three of these charges that James Lay has have entirely to do with their idolatrous lust after material wealth. And James, the brother of Jesus, is already 
familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus had said in Matthew 6, verse 19 through 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And James says, guess what? All of your treasure is rotting away. It is rusting. Their hoarding had reached immoral levels, reality show levels of hoarding. There was need out in the world and they turned a blind eye to it. And where did all of this surplus of wealth come from? It came from withholding wages in verse 4. The wages of their workers, they were holding back by fraud. So they were cooking the books. They were rewriting contracts just so they could hold on to what they should have paid to their employees. If they hadn't been so busy cooking the books and if they had read the book that they had, they would know that throughout the Old Testament, every time there's a mention of people withholding wages, the, the theme, the refrain that happens throughout Scripture is that the Lord will hear This begins in in the Exodus when the Lord hears the outcry of the slaves in Egypt. And then it continues in Deuteronomy 15, verse 9, in 24, verse 15, and again in Exodus 22, verse 23. The Lord is the one that hears when oppressed workers who aren't paid cry out to the Lord. And then doubling the charges, James notes that the wages themselves and the workers are crying out in chorus together. And the Lord of hosts hears them both. It reminds us of the fact that Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, tells us that on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. There's that idea there that not only are the workers crying out against these wicked people, but even the wealth itself that's sitting in their bank accounts is testifying against them. There's also this fourth charge of murdering the righteous or murdering the just. You've condemned and murdered the just person, the righteous person. He does not resist you in verse 6. It's interesting that in the early church, James, the brother of Jesus, was also known as James the Just. He himself, the James who wrote this book, was martyred. So who is the righteous person that they're referring to here? Well, first, Christ. They murdered Christ. But that's not necessarily everything that's in view here. It's also just referring to righteous, helpless people in general. This idea was that that they weren't hesitant to even shed blood Right to, to heap up this life of luxury and self-indulgence endurance uh, for themselves. The just didn't even fight back. And God is particularly ticked with this generation because he had said in Matthew 23, Jesus had said in his discourse, all the righteous blood shed from Abel to Zechariah will come upon this generation, those unbelieving Jews that James was writing to in his day. So he was particularly ticked that the righteous were being killed. And so there's four judgments, there's four sentences that are brought against them. First, miseries. In verse 1, this isn't discipline, this isn't when God chastises you for your sin. This is full-bodied, foaming wrath, drank down to the dregs. James is telling them, take up a funeral dirge, join your own funeral march. You're the person in the casket. Weep and howl. The second consequence is, corruption of their goods in verses 2 and 3. He says that your riches are rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. The the irony of hoarding material goods, especially when there's a needy world out there, is that the goods don't last. 
Right? They always said they always say like stolen bread is sweet. Well, this stolen bread is maggot infested. It actually reminds us of when the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're put to the test and they uh, they're given manna. Right. And do you remember what happens when they try to gather more than they need for that day? They wake up the next morning and it's full of worms. That's the idea of what's happening here is that their, their royal robes are moth-eaten. Their silver and gold, which don't normally tarnish, are starting to tarnish and rust. Not only will their, gold, their, their goods be corrupted, though, they themselves will be consumed by flame. Verse 3. This will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. So the slow oxidizing process of the metals tarnishing becomes a picture of the rapid oxidization that will happen to their flesh in hell. They will burn in hell. And then imminent slaughter, verse 5, makes reference to the fact that they've fattened their hearts, not just their bodies, their hearts. Their hearts are weighed down with the fat of idolatry. Think of, think of when you're watching the Discovery Channel and you see open heart surgery and you see a, a person who's extremely overweight and their, their heart their thoracic cavity is filled with, with, with fat. Think of that as a picture of this disgusting idolatry in their hearts. They're like clueless cows that are just eating all of the food in sight on the way to the slaughterhouse. They're about to be killed. This is imminent. This is right upon them. They're glutting themselves on the way to the slaughterhouse. And so these are these four consequences here. Miseries, corruption of goods, consumption by flame, and imminent slaughter. When? Notice he says the day of slaughter. This is all coming soon. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are not coming upon your grandchildren, but are coming upon you. Verse 1, this is coming soon. They have laid up treasure right now. The the treasure that they have, they've laid it up in the last days in verse 3. Verse 5, they're in the day of slaughter. Verse 8 says the Lord is at at hand. And verse 9 says the Lord is at the door. The judge is at the door. So none of this makes sense if James is only talking to some far-off generation that will experience the return of Christ or that will experience the final day of judgment. He's talking about something that's happening right now in his day when Jesus condemned these same opulent, unbelieving Jews. He underscored the fact in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. He said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There was a real temporal judgment that these people were about to undergo. And it happened exactly 40 years, which is the Jewish concept of a generation, after they crucified their Messiah. In A.D. 70, the Lord Jesus came in judgment against the Jewish nation by way of the Romans invading Jerusalem. It was one of the bloodiest events that ever happened. Josephus records it in in War of the Jews. Over a million Jews slaughtered in the span of three and a half years. It was a bloodbath. And it was this wrath that was about to come upon them. Because when we read of this language of the Lord's coming, we, we always assume that it refers to his final coming at the end of history, at the end of human history. But he's coming in judgment here against those who are... Jews in name only. This, by the way, is what he says. Uh, this, is, this is what is written in, in Malachi chapter 3, which refers to the first coming of Christ right after John the Baptist. Malachi chapter 3, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. Right. So John the Baptist was this forerunner before Jesus and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Think of Jesus coming in and turning over the, the tables in the temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and make them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This idea that when Jesus came, he came to bring salvation. He came to purify the people of God. We are priests of God now as a result of what he's done in his first coming. And it says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. And then this, again, this is Malachi 3, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Draw near. He's coming in judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker for his, uh, in his wages. We just read about that. The widow, the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this idea that the Lord would come in judgment against these people in this, this complex of events that surrounds Christ's first coming, including people who oppress their hired workers. Of course, just because James is referring to a, a series of events that would happen to the original audience does not mean it doesn't have application for us, right? That never stopped us from applying anything else in the Bible that refers to past events. Because the reality is, is that whether Jesus' final return for the final day of judgment is in 40 years or 400 years, we will all face God. And we'll do it within one generation. We'll do it within our own lifetime. We will all face God at the end of our lives or when Christ returns or, or both. Right. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And whether or not we fit this exact description of the oppressive rich, the reality is, is that if we stand before God with hands full of treasures that are moth eaten and rusty, and if that's all we have to bring before God, we're in trouble. Are we able to stand before God? Jesus stands at the door. Jesus is present. He is watching us. The one who was crucified was raised and he's judge and, and we will all stand before him. And the good news is that he has given us something better than these corruptible treasures that we would try to impress him and, and bribe him with. Jesus died in the place of sinners and rose and gives to us his perfect righteousness. So that if we take that by faith, if we take hold of Jesus, the perfect life that he lives counts for us. We are counted as righteous in Christ so that we can stand before God in robes of righteous splendor that are never moth-eaten. And we can stand before a holy God and have access to God who loves us, because the same one who's judge is also the one who died to make a way for us to stand before him as the judge. And if you don't know Jesus in this way as a savior from the wrath of God, then, then know him in this way, because this is a reminder of real wrath that happened. And yet Jesus is the one who covers our sin. So if we're living in luxury and self-indulgence, if we're taking advantage of other people, whether that just means poorly paying our employees or if that means that any of our creature comforts are coming to us at the expense of others, the wrongful expense of others, we have to be aware that, that he's a judge and yet he's made a way for us to stand before him. That's the gospel that Jesus made a way for us to stand before a holy God. And so 
James gives these warnings to those who are around them in their generation, in their day. But then he turns and he gives encouragement. So first he warns of impending wrath for the impenitent rich. Second, he gives this encouragement of promised salvation for patient sufferers. Promised salvation for patient sufferers, starting in verse 7. He turns and addresses the believers in the church. Be patient, therefore, brothers. That's how we know he's speaking now to those who are in Christ by faith. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. And so he he goes on, but we should note right off the bat that the Christian life is fundamentally a life of delayed gratification. And again, as he talks about the coming of the Lord, we should be reminded that the Lord was about to come against that generation in judgment. But we also know that the Lord is coming again, finally, to bring about the full consummation of his kingdom. And so there's three aspects here that we'll look at in the remainder of the section from verse 12, verse 7 to verse 12. The priority of patience, the prospect of patience, and the pattern of patience. So first, the priority of patience. He says, be patient, establish your hearts. There's a word for patience that we don't use too often anymore, but it's the word long-suffering, which is actually the word in the Greek here. It's, it's a compound word, macro and thumeo. Think of macro, macro, large, right? Long-suffering. To be patient is, is not just to be a doormat. To be patient is to suffer long. It implies suffering. It implies real resistance. It implies that you will be enduring something unenjoyable. And then he gives this agricultural analogy and he says, look at the farmer, right? He has to wait for the spring rain and the fall rain. This idea that as we're patient, as we obey God, as we try and keep his commands, not to earn salvation, but as those who have been saved by grace through faith, and now we're trying to please God because he loves us and we love him, there's this reality that we won't immediately see the fruit of our obedience. We'll be enduring trial patiently. And we won't wake up the next morning and it'll all be over and we'll be able to, you know, kind of brush our shoulders off and pat ourselves on the back and be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad now I get to enjoy, you know, the, the fruit of my patience that that's later. That's in eternity. The Christian life is a life of delayed gratification. There's a cross before the crown. And even realizing that, that as the, we're thinking of Jesus as the judge, as the harvester, as the one who, who threshes and harvests, that that means two things. It means he's about to come in wrath against these rich individuals here, right, which he did in A.D. 70. There's the maturation of the wicked, but at the same time, there's the maturation of the righteous, right? Just like the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. You have wheat and you have weeds, and we might be looking around at society and seeing things going from bad to worse, but what's also happening is our own progress. Not from bad to worse, but our own maturation. We are growing. We are to be bearing fruit. And the reason that God waits, and the reason that we have to be patient, and we have to wait for the return of the Lord, is because He's developing in us the things that He wants to see, the fruit of the Spirit that He's after. The priority of patience is key. Why, why does he place such priority on patience? First, when we're impatient, when we grumble, we're often grumbling against God. 
not saying we can't complain to God. The psalmist does that all the time. We are to lament, but sometimes we're complaining against God. Just like in Exodus 16, the wilderness generation, their cardinal sin was grumbling as soon as they left Egypt. That generation, by the way, was was a, a picture of what this first century church would be like, just like there were 40 years in the wilderness. The New Testament church was 40 years between the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ and the final revelation of that judgment that was coming against the unbelieving Jews and the vindication of the Christian community. And so they have that same temptation in their spiritual wilderness, waiting for Jesus to, to vindicate what he was doing in this new thing called the church. They had that same temptation to complain and to grumble and not trust God to provide. So not only do we grumble against God, we also tend to become embittered against the fellow members of the visible community of God's people. Jesus said in Matthew 24, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. We have a tendency to respond to lawlessness that we see around us, right? Look at these evil rich people, or look at whatever is happening in the world. Look at, you know, look at the degradation of marriage. Look at the slaughter of the unborn that's happening. And we look at the corruption of the world, and we become loveless. We look at lawlessness, and we respond with cynicism, with bitterness. We become a church full of Jonas, waiting for Nineveh to burn. Right? The, the world is going up in flames, and we become ice cold at the same time. We're like Asaph in Psalm 73, who said he, he, he looked at his own uh, religious uh, behavior, his piety, and he, he felt like it was all in vain, and he became brutish and beastly towards God in his prayers, and his praises were eclipsed with imprecations. He became a cynic. James warns us not to do so, and he specifically warns us not to grumble against our brothers. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged I confess I'm, I'm guilty of grumbling against brothers and sisters in the Lord. And yet, look at chapter 4, and what do we say about judging brothers? In verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If you judge your brother, if you speak evil against your brother, he says, don't do that lest you not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The person who judges, who condemns. That's not the same thing as loving confrontation. But the person who condemns a brother or sister in Christ is putting himself or herself in the position of a divine legislator. And because of that, God says, you want to be a legislator? You will be judged. You're putting yourself above the law. Just like when God was writing the Ten Commands on Sinai, you wouldn't look over his shoulder and say, oh, there's a typo there. In the same way, we look over God's shoulder as he writes his law on people's hearts in the church, and we condemn them, and we bring accusation against them. And he says, don't grumble against each other. And when there's all this chaos out here in the world, we tend to even look at each other suspiciously. And he warns that we shouldn't do that. That's part of the priority of patience. Second, the prospect of patience. It's one thing just to be patient and long-suffering, but to be patient, you need something to look for, right? You need a goal. Christian endurance is teleological, meaning it has an ends, it has a, an object that you're looking towards. And for us, the prospect of our patience is the coming of the Lord. 
We, we see here that same language of the coming of the Lord. When we murmur against fellow believers, when we're impatient, we have to realize that we're looking towards vindication. The judge is at the door. This is bad news for the guilty, but good news for God's people. The Lord is coming. We will meet him or he will come here first, but we will meet the Lord. And his coming is bad news for those who don't know him because he is a judge. And we saw the reality of his wrath. But it's good news for those who are patiently waiting for him, who are entrusting their cause to God, who when they're wronged, they don't go and retaliate, but they entrust it to God as judge. Your vindication is coming. Jesus will return. Hang in there. And finally, the pattern of patience that we're given. The model that we have for this type of behavior. James gives two examples that we can follow. The prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord in verse 10 and Job in verse 11. There's two different kinds of patience here. The prophets endured persecution. And when they endured persecution, they didn't lash out against their persecutors. Job was oppressed and he lost all of his wealth and his riches. He, he learned this lesson about wealth and riches, that they're fleeting and that they're a terrible savior. And he didn't give up faith when he was oppressed. He didn't cave in. So the, the temptation either to lash out, the prophets resisted that temptation, or the temptation to cave in. And Job resisted that temptation as well. But look first at the prophets. These prophets are serious. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what kind of people they were. The prophets, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. I'm okay with all of those things, by the way. I would love to stop the mouths of lions. I would love to escape the edge of the sword. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. The world didn't deserve these people. Wandering about in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth. The prophets endured incredible persecution. Well, what about Job? We tend to think about Job as just a book about somebody who suffers and God kind of puts him in his place at the end. But we forget that in all of his trials, he did not sin or charge God with wrong, according to Job 1, verse 22. And at the end, Job 42, 8, God recognized my servant Job has spoken of me what is right. Job endured. And James says, behold, we count those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. What does it mean we count those blessed? That word blessed is happy. We count those happy. These prophets who are sawn in two. Job who lost everything even though he did nothing to deserve it. These are the happy ones. Not the opulent rich. Not the ones who underpay their employees so that they can fill their own bathtubs with gold coins like Scrooge McDuck, 90s reference. The real happy people are the Jobs, the prophets. And it says, 
you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He won't let us wait forever. He will vindicate those who are suffering unfairly, unjustly. And finally, he says, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. Again, we know James was very familiar with his brother's Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, again, you have heard it said, this is Matthew 5, verse 33, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of God, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything else comes from evil. So if you have to invoke your mother's grave in order for people to believe you, it's a sure sign that you're not patiently enduring the way James instructs us to here. Patient endurance is incompatible with passionate oaths, especially oaths that that swear on the money and the plate instead of the God in the building. Those types of oaths that idolize anything. We're not forbidden from taking oaths, right? Lawful oaths, uh, oaths in court. And actually, in in the New Covenant, the, the, the Old Testament says that uh, that people would swear by the Lord, that would be one of the signs of, of people coming to know God truly. But passionate oaths are incompatible with patient endurance. So to bring some application from these passages. First, we know that Jesus is serious about sin. And First Peter chapter 4, verse 17 reminds us that judgment starts at the house of God. And we see that as he's addressing Jews who are guilty of dependence on riches. He's serious about sin, but he's also made a way for us to stand before God. We will all face God, but if we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith in his death, his resurrection, then we can stand before a holy God and be saved. But we have to know that the judge is at the door and we have to turn to him and live. And if you haven't done that in this room, that's my encouragement to you is, to take sin seriously and turn from it and turn to Christ as Savior, and he will save any, anyone who comes to him. Second, we have to be patient. As we watch the world go crazy, as we look in our own midst and we have our own troubles and trials in the church and in our families and schools, be patient, strengthen your heart, establish your heart. In verse 8 where he says, establish your hearts, That word establish is the same word that's used when it says in the Gospels that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards the cross. He he established his heart. He, He strengthened, he propped up, he supported his heart. He resolutely looked at the cross and he took a step forward. And we're called to do the same in view of Christ coming to vindicate us. That means we won't grumble against our brothers and sisters in the Lord, lest their Lord and ours judge us. And finally, we look to that blessed hope where Christ will not only judge the wicked, and he will judge those who have wronged us, maybe those who claim to be Christians and aren't, but he'll also vindicate his saints.
And so, as we go into prayer, are you one of these rich, literally or otherwise, against whom the wrath of God is coming? Or are you someone who's looking to Christ and patiently waiting for him to come and save you because you believe in what he's done to save sinners? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for these warnings that are heavy and serious and show us that that you are a God of power. And Lord, yet thank you for the encouragement that that you give us the power to be patient because you are compassionate and merciful. You've vindicated Job. You've vindicated the prophets. You raised your son Jesus from the dead. And for everyone who trusts in Christ, there is a day coming. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more oppression. There'll be no more hurt at the hands of other people, even other believers. Lord, bind us together in unity as we worship you and as we conclude our time here together. In Jesus' name, amen. us for this last song. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in his dark and hidden minds, with ever-failing skill, he fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So God, we trust in you. Oh God, we trust. For saints, new courage takes the clouds that you now tread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. Hides his smiling face. So God, we trust in you. No God, we trust in you. When tears are graves and comforts few, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to end, and scared.
man is working vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So God, we trust in you. Oh God, we trust in you. So God, we trust in you. Oh God, we trust in you. When tears are great and comforts you, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. Lord God, we just pray that we would take heed to the warnings in your word, Lord God, and that we would turn to you, Lord God, that through trials, through temptations, through despair, through everything, that we would turn and put our trust in you, that our joy would be made complete in you, because if we're, our joy is made complete in us, it's going to fail every time, Lord God. And we just pray that our joy would be made complete in you, that our trust would be in you, that our lives would be pointed and directed towards you, towards your word, towards your truth, towards your holiness, Lord God. I pray that as we go throughout this week, that we would be able to keep your truth, your holiness, your word, your face, Lord God, in our foresight. Lord God, we pray that you get all the glory and the honor in your name. Amen. Thank you.